Welcome to Drop Everything, podcast number 28. I'm your host, Dan Holzman, and what a pleasure on this podcast to talk to one of the pioneers of the comedy juggling genre, a man who goes by the name Marlin. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley in the uh, 80s. I was born in 1961. So in the, in the late 70s, seeing a juggler on TV was very, very influential to me. And this juggler, Marlin, was one of the first jugglers I saw on television and one of the first comedy jugglers of the modern type, really, in the world. So to talk to him on this podcast was a real thrill, and I hope you enjoy our upcoming conversation. Before we get to that, let's thank our sponsors. Of course, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. And the closer it gets, the more excited I get about the El Paso Convention, this year's IJA Festival. Some great special guests, and me too. That's right, I'll be hosting the Welcome Show at the IJA Festival in El Paso, Texas. If you want to join this group, if you want to find out about the festival and all the great products they have, go to juggle.org and learn more about the IJA International Jugglers Association. Of course, this podcast is also brought to you by my own personal coaching website, and that's called braindrizzles.com. So, if you're looking for ideas, you're looking for inspiration, looking for a great coach for your career, look no further than me, Dan Holzman, at braindrizzles.com. All right, let's get to the podcast. Get ready for Marlin. Welcome to the Drop Everything Podcast. What a pleasure. One of the pioneers of comedy juggling. Welcome to the podcast, Marlin. Hello. Hello, everybody. And you're talking all the way from Hawaii. You, you actually live in Hawaii. What part of Hawaii? Are you on the Big Island? I'm on the Big Island. And you know, when you're in Hawaii, you have to talk louder to reach across the ocean. Right. It's a big pond between you and me. And I think with the time change, you're still in 1986. Is that correct? Yeah, we're still in night. <laughs> Everything is slower here. I mean, uh, the internet is actually on the back of carrier tortoise. I think we're connected by a coconut and, two, and a long string between the two of us. So you sound pretty good. We, we started on a very lighthearted tone, which is fine. But let's, let's give you the respect you deserve because, you know, there's only so many sort of forefathers and pioneers. And being a comedy juggler myself, you hold a very important part in my history and my heart. So let's go back to the very beginning before we get to the TV version of Marlin. How did you start juggling? You started at quite a young age, at nine. What were the circumstances and what was your first experience of juggling like? My sister had a, a 45, yeah, they were called 45 records, the little small singles. Figured out I could juggle two of them in one hand. At the time, didn't even realize that was juggling. It was just like, hey, look at this, isn't this cool? So you had not even seen a juggler on TV? This was just something you just came to your own mind to do? Yes, yeah. And what was your first experience of seeing an actual juggler? Oh, gosh. It must have been the Ed Sullivan show. I mean, I grew up in that era. It must have been, it must have been Francis Brunn. And when you, when you saw juggling, were you immediately, like, fascinated? Or was it just sort of that passing thing, like, oh, that's juggling? Did it strike a chord? Gee, you know, I can't remember that it did in one way or another. I just knew that I had really good eye-hand coordination. So yeah, I was always uh, fiddling and playing and throwing things. Did you grow up in a sporting family or a theatrical family? What was your family background like? My parents were teachers. My brother went on to be uh, a professor of economics. My other brother was a lifer in the Marine Corps um, and then sold firearm training equipment uh, to police departments. My sister was a nurse. So I was very much the oddball of the family. Now, I see that you learned to juggle three tennis balls at 15. What prompted you then to go from the records when you were nine, sort of a, a six-year gap? Then what happened at 15 if you actually just start to learn the actual art of juggling? I was uh, playing tennis. I was on the varsity tennis team and really thought I was going to go pro. I mean, people saw that I had a real gift for it. Somebody opened up a can of tennis balls. There's three in there, and he was juggling on the court, and I went, hey, that's pretty cool. Let me try it. And I immediately got it. And then, um, I don't know, sometime later, I saw a guy who must have been, I don't know, six, seven, eight, maybe 10 years older than me, juggling three balls and bouncing them off the wall or bouncing it off the ground. And I went, oh, wow, you mean there's more to it than just the cascade pattern? So I learned, I learned some more tricks. And then uh, in high school, um, I picked up three things out of a prop box in drama class 
And it was like, I don't know, uh, a caster, a wheeled caster, a doorknob, and maybe something else. I don't remember. But I started juggling them. And this girl said, hey, that's pretty good. And her father was uh, Walter Blaney, Walter the Zany Blaney. He was a professional magician. And that was Becky Blaney. Hmm. She's, she told me about the, the, the gathering of magicians and jugglers uh, every Saturday at a, at a local restaurant. Everybody went there to talk story. So I showed up and I was just like, I was just a kid and everybody there was adults and learned about the International Jugglers Association. I was astonished, like there really is such a thing. And as fortune had it, I was living in Houston at the time. My parents split up when I was 11 and I would go and visit my father in the summer. And the convention was in 1974, was in Sarasota, Florida. So my father took me down there and dropped me off. And I was at the my first juggling convention. I think there was like 50 people at it. It was in a ballroom. Any names stand out of jugglers that you saw and remember from that time? Hubby Burgess. I believe Michael Motion and Penn Gillette may have been there. Don't recall for certain. My gosh, that was so long ago. But I think Hubby Burgess was at that. Now, did they have competitions back then? What was the structure like of those conventions in the 70s? Oh, my God. It was, you know, it would just be kind of like a little clutch of people would circle around somebody who was doing something. And then you, there would be a crowd and, and then it would be, it was incredibly informal. Someone would start doing something. I remember I showed up with bowling pins because I didn't know what Indian clubs were. Didn't know what juggling pins were. And, and somebody says, oh yeah, uh, you juggle bowling pins. So I went and got three bowling pins and showed up with those. And people were like, what are you doing with those? I go, isn't this what you juggle? <laughs> and, so, um, and then later on, it ended up being some kind of a competition, how long you could juggle bowling pins at, the, at, these, at these conventions. Yeah. And what did you do after attending this first convention? Well, wait a minute. Be between the 1974 convention and Clown College, mm -hmm. I uh, ran away with the circus. So the, in 75, I was juggling uh, cheese balls and salamis in front of a store. I was a stock boy. And uh, it was Hickory Farms of Ohio. And I'm juggling these cheese balls. And, and these two clowns walk up. These, they're in full clown regalia. And it's like, what are you clowns doing in the mall? They're going, oh, we're doing a circus promotion. And they said, hey, you're a pretty good juggler. You ever done any clowning? I said, well, yeah, children's parties. And they said, you want a job in the circus? And it was like, okay, sure. And then uh, left a few weeks later, left Houston, packed up my house, put everything in one trunk, and went up to Dallas. And I was part of the... Uh, State Fair Circus there. It was a big three-ring circus. Got fired after the third day for upstaging this old clown. And it was just, uh, you know, too much of enthusiasm being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But the next day, I got hired as an elephant groom and did that for a year and traveled around with uh, Bucky Steele's Cossack elephants, slept in the barn with the elephants and was with them pretty much 24-7. After uh, a few incidences of almost getting killed, I left after a year went back to Houston and started able to make rent as a juggler. I was 19, was able to hustle on the street. I would go into nightclubs and uh, places where bands played and ask the owner, hey, do you mind if I do a set between the band's breaks? It won't cost you anything. And I would do my gig and uh, walk around the club with my hat and was able to make rent. And then Ringling came through Houston and had auditions and I went to it and then I got, I landed the gig at the uh, Clown College and was in class of 76. Well, what surprised us about elephants? Having spent some time with them, is there anything surprising that you learned through your elephant experience? Well, one, they're incredibly intelligent, more than most people know. Much smarter than a primate, much smarter than a dog. And they're incredibly dangerous. More people have died from elephants than all of the other circus acts put together. And then that's what we're speaking of. Lions, tigers, bears, wire walking, trapeze, all of those things. Elephants have killed far, far more many people. It was a really cool experience. I mean, the owner had to be with me for like a month every single time I came in contact with the elephants. And that would be feeding, watering, walking behind them to shovel them, to brush them off. So the elephants got familiar with me and they didn't, didn't try to kill me. It was other people's elephants that tried to kill me. And also a polar bear one time and... So um, that's the day that's there. There are no more. Ringling finally retired the last uh, elephant. So that'll never happen again in history.
And how do you feel about that? Was that something you thought the, the elephants were being exploited somehow? Or do you think that's a sad thing that there's no more elephants in the circus? Well, I mean, it's a little of both. I mean, obviously, a wild animal, any kind of wild animal, doesn't belong in a cage and belongs in the wild. But, I mean, now you're starting to deny a historical overview going all the way back before Rome. Egypt, I mean, they were always bringing in wild exotics into uh, their cities. Yeah, I mean, I think humans as a species have evolved past that. And um, the expression, hold your horses, which everybody knows, people are not aware that the whole expression was, hold your horses, here come the elephants. Because in the early days, even before railroad, a lot of, or there wasn't always railroad to every single town. So circuses walked from town to town and people were still on horseback. And when the elephants came down the street, the horses would want to bolt. So the expression was, hold your horses, here come the elephants. Now, Clown College is also something that doesn't exist anymore. How long does it last and what was your experience like there? It's, it's an eight-week experience. I was also a student. I was also a teacher. I, I was teaching juggling there as well as attending. I have this great story about pies. There was one fellow in class. I think he was from Latin America. And he says, you know, I just don't see what's funny about this pie-throwing thing. Because we're watching, you know, Max Sinek movies and all kinds of stuff. He just didn't see anything humorous about it. So... Um, I planned a practical joke. I uh, had a pie underneath the table, a shaving cream pie. And some of the other people were in on this and they were trying to steer the teacher to start talking about pies again. And the teacher finally brought up the subject and went, you know, Max Senek used them a lot and everybody really thought they were funny. And I said like this, and I turned around and I pied the guy from Latin America. And the class totally broke up. And, and while everybody's laughing and I turn my back on him and I'm no longer looking at him, he takes what's left of the pie and hits me with it. And now he thinks it's funny. So you have your, your, your clown college experience. Now, were you offered a contract with the circus? And is that something you were interested in doing? Oh, absolutely. I wanted to go out on the train because I had already been doing, I'd already done a year. I was doing so much of a show at that time. And that was the first place where uh, I did juggling and washing my hair at the same time. And it was the closing piece for the, the clown graduation recital. I ended up getting a gig at Circus World, which I don't think exists anymore either. And I started as a clown and then uh, someone kind of took notice of me. And then they had me doing the come in for the IMAX movie and then someone took notice of me, and then they had me doing basically the same act that I was doing on the streets of in Houston, uh, opening for the Mark Wilson magic show. So here I went from clown to uh, stage performer, and then another boss clown came in, and I got fired as a clown again. So I got fired twice in my life as a clown. But the next day, I got picked up by a belly dance troupe and was touring the Eastern Seaboard uh, playing at fraternal orders, military bases, and the like. And what time did you start talking? Was this all as a comedy juggler, or were you silent at this time? Oh, no. I started talking as soon as I was working on street corners in Houston, Texas. This goes back to 1974. I mean, mm. even before I took off with the circus. Gotcha. Because I realized as I was juggling at a, at a block party, people wouldn't spend much time looking at me. So I started talking to them. And then they would, then now I, now I had them engaged. My first appearance on stage doing a talking act was uh, Clifton Chenier and his Zydeco band uh, at the uh, Liberty Hall uh, music, music venue in Houston, Texas. And were you aware of any other comedy talking jugglers at that time? I think I, I did see when I was still in high school, I think it was in 1973, I saw Bobby Sandler doing the apple eating trick on the Flip Wilson show. And it was funny, one of the adults sitting in the room, he was looking at that and he looked at me, he says, someday that's going to be you. And that was pretty prophetic. I don't remember him doing like a lot of talking comedy. I remember him sort of talking about what he was doing. And you actually had like actual jokes and comic material. Was comedy something that you were interested separately from juggling, or you just sort of picked that up after the juggling started? Oh, I was always the class clown. I was always very quick with my... I, I was told I had a smart mouth. That always got a kid in trouble. So what was your first TV show, and, and how did that come about? 
Well, actually, the first television thing I did was a, a documentary on me called The Street Juggler. And that was done in 1974. And it was uh, by an NBC affiliate in Houston, Texas. And uh, it was a 30-minute documentary on me juggling around Houston. Going forward again to now 1976, I was with that fraternal, yeah, I was with that belly dance troupe. And then um, we stopped in Atlanta. I did a street show and some people saw it and said, oh, you should go out to this club. They have a talent show. I went out there. I won the cash prize. But what I won was Carrie uh, uh, Livgren, who was the lead guitarist of Kansas, saw me and said, oh, hey, do you know the Don Kirshner's rock concert? I said, oh, I've seen that. And he goes, well, you should be on it. Do you have a videotape? Now, do you know how rare it was to have a videotape back in 1976? I mean, it was just an oddity. And I happened to have the Street Juggler documentary. So I sent it on to the television show. I mean, this was a three-quarter inch tape. And I, I, and I landed my gig on uh, Don Kirshner's Rock Concert, 1977. I was introduced by saying, uh, Don Kirshner said, we here at Rock Concert believe that Michael Marlin will do for juggling what Doug Henning has done for magic. And then a year later, I was uh, touring with Doug Henning. Wow, because I always thought of you as sort of the Doug Henning of juggling. I thought you had that same kind of vibe. You were very uh, photogenic. You had a really great TV likability. So you actually did get a chance to work with Doug Henning. And how long, how long of a tour did you do with him? That was 40 cities. Your opening or was it a spot in the middle of the show? What was that like? It was a spot in the middle of the show. It was the support act. And there was such a similarity between me and him. I had to shave off my mustache. And then I put on a fake mustache because I played his double in a trick oh. called Bump, Bump in the Night. <laughs> I could see that because, like I say, you had a very similar sort of likability. And were you inspired by Doug Henning on that tour with him? A little bit. It was funny. I, I was performing in what looked like uh, silk pajamas. And I actually did. I walked out on stage barefoot. Doug had a, a very gentle way about him. He was a really sweet man to work with. If it wasn't for Doug Henning, there never would have been a David Copperfield. So he really did break open the whole took magic out of the uh, tuxedo realm. What piece did you do on the Don Kirshner's rock concert? What type of material were you doing back then? I did a piece where, um, let's see, I did a, a couple of different numbers, but people can go online and, and Google Michael Marlin juggler Don Kirshner. And you see a piece that I do, it's a storytelling piece where I get the audience to go boo, hiss with the forces of evil. And one ball was a man, one ball was a woman, and one was the forces of evil. So it was kind of a melodrama. And I illustrated it by doing uh, different juggling tricks and telling the story at the same time. So search YouTube for Michael Marlin on the Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. Now let's get back to your live performing. What did you do after this tour with Doug Henning ended? 78 comes along. I met Robert Nelson, Butterfly mm. Man. Well, he came up to me at the 1978 Youngstown, Ohio Juggling Convention. And he said, uh, so what's the secret to your success? And I said, uh, name a famous juggler. And he goes, well, W.C. Fields. He goes, now name a famous comic. And he riffed off a whole bunch. George Carlin, just, just a whole bunch of Lenny Bruce, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, so you see, Comics stand out in people's minds. People remember uh, comedians. And so Robert at the time was just doing a musical juggling act and he was living in Nashville, Tennessee. We went out to San Francisco to together. I was already on the college circuit by that time and, and had done my television appearances. And I kind of basically mentored Robert into uh, the talking juggling stuff. I, I gave him my old notebooks and I said, here, you know, if there's anything in any of these that you can find useful, please help yourself. And I had no idea that I launched his career. It was a very, very touching moment. He passed recently and he called me up and I was in Philadelphia at the time. He was very, very close to passing over. And he said to me, you know, I want to thank you because because of you, I was able to live a dream. And um he touched so many people's lives, so many people. And it just kind of reminds me and anybody out there, you never know 
how your actions are going to change the world or how anything that you say or how you uh, help somebody is going to just have a ripple effect and, and go out to, to hundreds of thousands of people that you'll never meet. That's such a nice story because he, he mentored so many people and to realize that you mentored him and helped him start his career is really a valuable piece of information. You should be very proud of that because he, he was a big part of my story and a lot of the story of a lot of jugglers. Again, I had no idea that it was going to end up that way. He was just someone who I decided, you know, helped out. We were roommates together for a period of time. And it was it was sweet to see him actually be able to uh, make the transition over. It was, yeah, it was, it was really sweet. Thank you. Well, and also you were a big inspiration on the Raspini brothers and all the jugglers of that generation. I think I remember seeing you on John Davidson's show. Is that? <laughs> yeah. Now, I have a question about that show, and you can maybe choose to answer this or not, is that, this is my recollection, is that you came out juggling five rings, and that, like, a ring dropped, and you let all the rings drop. And I wasn't sure if that was planned or just your response to having one drop. It just seemed like such a good move that if it was an unintentional drop, that it was the perfect cover. Was that something you were planning to do? Yeah, that was actually part of my act. That's the way I opened my act when I was playing in Las Vegas. That's I came out, the band was paying the upbeat music. Bah, 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 I'm juggling the five rings. And then I just simply walk away from yeah. them. Going, <laughs> That's probably the kind of juggler you're used to saying, I'm not that. But it kind of blew my mind, to be honest. It was what I planned to do. And it was funny, Dick Franco... <laughs> when he was playing Vegas, he goes, can you take one of my best tricks and actually just walk away from it? I know you had a chance to be on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, but it didn't quite work out. Uh, can you tell us about that? When I was living with Robert in San Francisco, I was slated to do The Johnny Carson Show. Mm -hmm. And he was standing in the room when Johnny Carson said, and tomorrow night our guests will be yada, 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 and juggler Michael Marlin. And I flew down to L.A., to be on the show and I get there and they go, oh, we're sorry, but somebody, you know, Gallagher went overtime last night and took the guy's spot who he was supposed to follow. And so we're giving him your spot. And I went, oh really, what does he do? And the guy who took my spot on the Tonight Show was a cow chip thrower uh, from Beaver, Oklahoma. And he gave Johnny Carson a plaque of gold plated cow chips. And I never got rescheduled on the show, though I tried repeatedly for over 10 years. And I got to tell you, that was heartbreaking. And that I never, ever really recovered from that. I always felt like what my career might have been or where I could have done had I had my spot on The Tonight Show. Wow, sorry you never got that break. Uh, it's a tough one to be bump for the, the cow chip tosser and uh, never get your shot. But you did have a very successful college performing career. I did some 350 uh, colleges and universities between 1977 and 1981. Mm. And then um, did all of the, the college booking conferences and stuff like that. And then realized, well, gee, I'm just going to stay out here on the college circuit the rest of my life unless I decide to move out of this. So I, I took work in Atlantic City. And this is when there were two, two casinos, the uh, Golden Nugget and uh, Resorts. And the Tropicana was still under construction. I was in a, a Jeff Kutas show, a Brand New Day. And I was the, the Variety Act, the Wire Walker, uh, and the MC all rolled into one. And then he opened up a show in Las Vegas in the fountain room at the Tropicana Hotel. And I appeared in that and then got hired over into the Foley's Brigere. The only other juggler in town at the time was Chris Cremo. Uh, I realized I was the first talking juggler ever to appear in Las Vegas. They had never seen anything like that before. Well, before you, I mean, comedy juggling used to be very primitive. You would have jugglers like a, a Rob Murray who would come out and he'd basically be like, good show drummer, I barely move my feet. But the sort of, the sort of blending of the comic dialogue with the juggling was, was pretty new when you started doing it. And I could see you being the first one in Vegas around that time. Did you have any relationship with Chris Cremo? Was he somebody who, who you admired? 
Oh, I mean, we hung out together. I mean, it was cool that he was able to have his act passed on to him from his dad. I mean, and, and doing the same act as his father. I remember seeing a video of him and Bella Cremo doing the same act together and uh, perfectly in sync. So yeah, I mean, the same kind of magic gatherings that happened, people would get together on whatever night and the jugglers and magicians in town would, would come and hang out together. Uh, Lance Burton and I were roommates. Uh, when he first came into the Foley's Brugere, I was already there. Uh, it was funny, one night we're hanging out and Lance goes, you know, I've always wanted to do a trick with a sword because there was a sword and card trick. And I said, well, why don't you do a switch? You know, you could do the, have a fencing mask on and do a switch with the sword. And by gosh, that went on to be his closing piece mm. for years. And so that was kind of interesting to, to see a, a, another little piece where, you know, something is dropped and someone picks it up and, and goes with it. Another interesting fact about your career is that you were probably the first comedy juggler to ever appear at the Magic Castle. It took many, many years to get in there. The only other juggler at the time uh, was Jim Reinhardt, and he was the only juggler in there. So eventually, after repeated knockings on the door, uh, Bill Larson and uh, Peter Pitt was doing the booking. They finally let me come in and, and do my act. So um, as far as I know, I was the first talking comedy juggler at the uh, Magic Castle. And I think this was around 1983, 84, something like that. I don't remember the dates. It's all so last millennium. And I'm so glad you mentioned Jim Reinhardt, because I was just talking to David Kane, who is a, a juggling historian. And I was trying to tell him that the jugglers I had seen early in my development as a juggler, they were Bobby Sandler. I remember seeing this this gentleman at the Variety Arts Theater. Yes. Who must have been Jim Reinhardt, because that name yeah. totally rings a bell. Yeah. And the one chick I remembered was he would do three clubs, and he would spread them apart really far. Yeah. So thank you so much, because now there's a, another piece of my juggling history has been filled in. Jim Reinhardt. And hey, going back to the colleges, any one particular college story stand out as a either a hell gig or a gig that you all will always remember? Yes, yes, thank you. Uh, Emory University in Atlanta. And I remember uh, there was a line that I had. I used to do different characters. So there was a, a Chinese juggler named Cho King, a <laughs> cowboy juggler named Buck Naked, a, a, a punk juggler named Toxic Shock. There was a line that I had was, uh, should we thank God for theologians or thank theologians for God? And one person in the back of the house is going... <laughs> and and I said, you must be a theologian. And he said, no, I'm God. No, oh, that's great. <laughs> that's a pretty heavy piece. So you're always kind of uh, sort of injected your philosophy into your performances, as I remember. It was kind of a deeper type of juggling than just sort of the, um, the standard comedy juggling. Were you also inspired by philosophy and other areas outside of juggling for your performances? Yes, I, I was. I mean, my father taught philosophy and logic at the college level. I can say that one of my early influences was George Carlin, uh, whom I got to uh, open for at one time. I guess it's just having a, a mind that is constantly searching, is constantly curious. It, that was just the kind of sense of humor that I had. It wasn't, um, I loved plays on words. I loved being clever with words. I ended up actually writing uh, writing material. Uh, remember Locomotion Vaudeville? Sure. I, did, I wrote material for them. They were at the Clown College with me at the same time. And uh, Flip, uh, who toured with them for many years, was one of my classmates. So I wrote, I wrote comedy for them. I wrote comedy for different magicians and for some other jugglers. So writing has always been a part of my life and, and still is. I mean, I'm a, I'm a speech writer. I write screenplays. I do essays. I'm a cartoonist. Uh, my book, uh, The Contemplative Naval, is, was reviewed as a cross between Will Rogers and Sophocles. Okay, that's a good range. Will <laughs> Rogers and Sophocles. Yeah. And of course, we'll have a, a, a link to your website where people can find out more about your other projects. But also there's a project, I know you were maybe jealous of some of the jugglers on The Tonight Show, but we were very jealous back in the day when we saw you on a series of commercials for Toyota, like a whole series of commercials. Ten. Ten commercials. And that, once again, was around that time where we thought, 
this guy's just killing it. Now, you wrote some of those commercials too, didn't you? Well, I actually, I, yeah, I wrote all of them. How mm. that happened was I was in the Follies Brigere in Vegas, and uh, some people said, hey, can you come up to our suite and do a little custom, do a little show for us? And I worked in some of their names and, and made some jokes about the company. And then they had me uh, host the, the Toyota rollout of trucks. And there was like 30 pages of script I had to memorize, and I'm juggling under the truck on a, a creeper in the back of the truck and juggling all kinds of different things, baseball bats, tennis rackets, crowbars. And then someone uh, in the audience um, said, hey, we want to do a series of uh, Toyota truck commercials with you. I worked with them hand in hand and basically was able to write my own content just so long as I worked in the message, Toyota trucks. Toyota dealers, there's nine days left, there's eight days left, there's seven, and each day the numbers came up in a different manner. And that was really, really fun. It got me nowhere. Again, that was mm. one of those other ones where it almost went national, but the, the ad agency who made that campaign and the ad agency who ran the national campaign, of course, were different companies and there was no cross-pollination. So I never got the, the national exposure with that. Well, it was very memorable because I remember being at uh, Barry Bacalor's house, who was an early sort of juggling supporter, had lots of videos. Yeah, I remember Barry. And when you came on and we saw that, we thought you were like a, like a you know, a, a star. We really did. So uh, this was before I was professional at all. So no, you really were kind of like Zaylig, like the Woody Allen character, the fact that you were sort of involved in so many of these historical performers and moments in the early days of juggling. But then at some point, you decided to take a break, like you took a, a five-year hiatus from performing. Yeah, so what happened was uh, one more incident where I really felt like the universe took the brass ring out of my hands. I was slated to be the host of a late-night comedy show. See, so what had happened when I left, when I left Las Vegas, I couldn't keep doing the same 10-minute act over and over and over again. I just had to walk away from that. Mm -hmm. I moved to L.A., I worked with a ballet company there in a production of The Little Prince where I played like six different roles and used juggling to illustrate the characters. And then a, a conductor saw me and, and hired me and commissioned me to create interpretive juggling to classical music. So I appeared for three seasons with the Pacific Symphony Orchestra. And as far as I know, no one had ever done that before, juggling as a soloist with an orchestra. So then um, I'm in LA and I finally broke the barrier. Uh, in comedy clubs, the middle act was always the variety act. It was the magician or sure. the juggler or the ventriloquist. And then finally I was able to punch through that and become a headliner. And I was headlining the Comedy Magic Club in uh, Hermosa Beach, the Ice House in Pasadena, which were the only two paying venues in Los Angeles. And then, uh, of course, all around the rest of the United States. And the only other variety act who was actually headlining comedy clubs was Harry Anderson, the magician. So some people saw my show and they went, hey, we want you to be the host of this late night comedy show. And for two months, we're in rehearsal and, and everything's getting set up. And the day of the shoot, I, I'm up on stage getting ready to shoot, do the, the taping. They bring in a guy and he ends up being the host of the show. No one had seen the guy on the set ever. Hmm. And that man was, his name was Kevin Pollack. Oh, the, the comedian. And, the, and who went on to appear in movies with Walter Matthau, Jack Lennon, Cruz, Robert De Niro. <laughs> and it was like, oh my God, again? Again with this? Out of the blue. No one had seen him. And it was like one of those things where obviously it was back backstage dealings with agents and producers and the talent never knows anything about it. And boom, there he was. And now he was the host of the show. So that's when I decided to just, I was sitting on my, in my house in, in uh, Hermosa Beach and looking up at the ceiling going, okay, I get it. I'm not <laughs> supposed to be doing this. And I sold everything and moved to Hawaii and helped Belly Acres found. I was a founding member of that. I built and I lived in a tree house. My manager at the time says, you're, you're committing professional suicide. And I went, yeah, I guess, but... By now, 1986, there was a lot of jugglers in the field. And whenever I called someone up and said, hey, I do comedy, and they go, oh, you're, you're one of those. Right. And I went, yeah, but, but wait a minute. I, I mean, like, I... I <laughs> right, right, right. 
No, no, you don't get it. I'm the comedy juggler. You don't, you don't. Quite... Well, I, yeah, this is like, yeah, but I was doing it, you know, it's, <laughs> it didn't matter. I lived in this tree house that I built for five years with no electricity. You can see it on my website, mindofmarlin.com. And then while I was out there, uh, the experience of living with a bunch of jugglers in the jungle, it was Gilligan's Island meets Lord of the Flies. Because for people who don't know, Belly's Ake, Belly Acres was sort of a, a commune of jugglers. It was Who were some of the early guys out there? Yeah, there were. And it, it was, to be clear about it, and this is where my philosophical bent comes in, it wasn't a commune, it was a club. Okay. And the distinction between a community and a club is a community is inclusive and a club is exclusive. Mm, okay. And if you don't belong to the club, you can't even get in the back door. Right. And so this was back in the 80s, people were still figuring this sort of stuff out. I was continually advocating for a communication template. We have to have a communication template. We have to have the desire to improve the model of communication. Because unless people have taken some kind of communication course or some sort of study, they bring to them, to the table, the communication model that they learned from their parents, which for most of us was dysfunctional. Right. So you have a bunch of dysfunctional white guys all vying for competition and vying for power and position. It got weird. <laughs> yeah, like like I say, like a Lord of the Flies, like a... <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So after six years of breaking jungle and clearing jungle, and I, I remember there was an incident where I really knew that I was out in the wilderness, where I looked down and on my belly, where I had killed a mosquito and forgotten that it was even there, there was a fly feeding off of the dead mosquito on my body. <laughs> Great. So, so this this paradise of, of of jugglers has turned into a feral, wild, foresting. Were there wild pigs and boars, and did you have to kill one and hold its head above you like a a primeval lord out there? Uh, no, we didn't bother <laughs> with the pigs. We used each other. I gotcha. I gotcha. But was it out there that you because the the later uh, incantation of your career has been this wonderful show, uh, Luma. So yeah. was, that, was that part of the inspiration was sort of the stars and the lights of Hawaii for you to create that? So, okay, so flashback to living in L.A. Okay. Some friends of mine took me, this is now 84, 85, some friends of mine took me out into the deserts of uh, California. And that was the first time I really, really saw the sky and was just blown away. This was 1986 because we went to look at Halley's Comet. Then the guy, he, we looked at Halley's Comet, so he goes, now take a look at this. And he showed me Orion's Nebula. And then he showed me the Andromeda galaxy. And I was just blown out of the water. And, the, and I realized, my God, this goes by every single night unnoticed because people's lights are on. I, it was just, it was revolutionary for me. And then so uh, a few months later, I'm playing in Las Vegas at the Old Sands Hotel. I took a buddy of mine, Jeff McBride, uh, <laughs> out, in, okay. out into the desert. He saw me tour with Doug Henning back in 1978. And so he and I kind of stayed in touch. And I said, hey, Jeff, let's go camping. I want to show you something. And we're out there. And he had never seen the Milky Way galaxy before. And he was just like, oh, my word. And I picked some branches up out of the fire. And I'm waving them around and creating this you know, light display. And all the little embers are flying up in the sky. And he says, you got to see what this looks like. And he did it for me. And it was just like, my gosh, that's just astonishing. So flash forward now a few more years and I'm in, I'm in Hawaii and I'm at the, uh, I'm standing next to a lava flow and that was the entertainment out then. You know, when you're living in the jungle with no electricity, the big deal is let's go look at the lava flow. Okay. And I saw people just glazed by the light and it reminded me of deer in the headlight, moss going around the flame, everything being drawn, you know, plants turning to face the sun. And I was like, my gosh, the whole world is drawn to light. You know, the whole world would want to see a show like that. And the next thought was, oh, my God, I'm going back into show business. God help me. Because you created this, <laughs> created this show called Luma. And I think yeah. the subtitle was The Theater of Light. At that time, it was called Theater of Light. Yeah. But actually, even before that, what I was doing, because it was like, I'm not light show, human light show. What the heck? 
So what I was doing, I was uh, still, you know, working on cruise ships, going around the islands a couple of days a week while I was living in the treehouse just to make some money. So I was doing an act called Laughing in the Light, Dancing in the Dark. And the first act was the first half was my my comedy juggling act that I did in Vegas and clubs. And then the second half, after I warmed the audience up to me, I turned off the lights and started doing all of these crazy things in the dark. Mm. I realized I'd hit on something because people were coming up to me who were octogenarians and they said, my whole life, I've never seen anything like this. So then I started to continue to, to pursue that and work on it. And then um, I got marginalized out of Belly Acres. I left there. I went back to, I, I moved to uh, Madison, Wisconsin, found a warehouse, Jules Fisher, um, who's won like eight Tonys for lighting design and it ha happens to be a hobbyist magician, uh, lit all of the shows for Ricky Jay. He and I meet. And he likes my stuff. He has me perform in a Broadway lighting masterclass. And I said, Jules, I said, how come no one has ever done a show about light before? He goes, well, because you're the one to do it. Now it's 1996. The show is now dubbed Luma. And we're given a logo. And some uh, Broadway, uh, some off-Broadway uh, producers saw what I did at Jules Fisher's class. They threw just enough money to get me in trouble <laughs> Okay. Yeah. <laughs> at the project. Oh, my God. Show is not easy. No, I mean, I went from being a solo act with a suitcase to now having five people and developing all of these props, prototyping things, and they had to leave the project because they were losing money on another one, I mean, as it happens. And I had like maybe 15 minutes of content, which, just, which was enough to start booking it on the special events market. And we got picked up by a big corporate uh, agent, industrial artist management in 1999. And they started booking us and we were doing like two to five minutes for general session openers for Mercedes-Benz and John Deere and Staples and all of these other type types of things. And then by 90, not 98, uh, still incubating the show in the warehouse in Madison. And it was cool because... As, uh, the guys from Blue Man Group came up to see us. They had just opened their show at the Briar Street Theater in Chicago. <laughs> it was funny. I went down and saw it. I went, oh, that's kind of cool. And, and then later on, I saw some of our our, our material in their Las Vegas show. Mm. Their, their uh, illuminated stick man right, was right. Uh, inspired by our stick man that we had in our show. That had always been a central figure in our work. The Psy Guy, who was born, lived died and then was reborn with all within the context of the show. We started touring and, and doing shows uh, at colleges and it ended up playing, we played now in like 15 countries on five continents. It's been at over 300 performing arts centers and we're celebrating our 20th anniversary as Luma uh, out on tour this uh, April. And we'll be hitting some major metro areas, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Chicago, uh, Annapolis, Concord, and Birmingham. The show, the tickets in Birmingham are already sold out, so sorry. But now, this this podcast will probably air like April 5th. Where does your tour start? And what's, it starts on the 6th, and what city was it going to start in? It, it'll be uh, April 6th at the James Lumber Center in Grays Lake. My suggestion is get the tickets as soon as you can. Well, I don't know. It might already be sold out because there's a, there's a feature story breaking in the Chicago Tribune. And then the next engagement is uh, in Pittsburgh at the Palace Theater on uh, April 8th. And there's a story breaking uh, in the Pittsburgh Gazette. So the ticket sales will probably be heavy there as well. And then the next show is April the 10th at the Grand Opera House in Wilmington, Delaware. April 12th at the Maryland Center for the Performing Arts in Annapolis. And then the Capital City for the uh, Capital Center for the Arts in Concord, New Hampshire, on April 14th. And then uh, on April 21st, 22nd, we're in Birmingham. And then on, on April 22nd, there'll be a second show, uh, a second uh, Luma show, appearing simultaneously at the uh, Black Hawk Casino in Denver with one of my old Luma performers, Greg Kennedy. Greg used to be was with the show for like six years and then went on to Cirque du Soleil and uh, so so happy for him. I've always been so enamored by his work and was very privileged to have him in our show. And so he heads up a second Luma troupe doing the Spheris show uh, in uh, Denver. Yeah, very interesting. And the show itself is sort of a combination of uh, club swinging and juggling and, and I guess you'd call it black art and all kinds of different lighting effects. And it's a, it's, I saw it here in San Francisco. So if you, if you, 
in any of these towns or cities, I definitely recommend you checking out Luma. Uh, thank you. Thank you for that, uh, Daniel. Yeah, the show combines a lot of disciplines, not only a lot of light technology. I mean, I moved beyond, I mean, we're using a lot of stuff now that when I began hadn't even been invented yet. I mean, a lot of people don't realize 1996 was the invention of the blue LED. And it was from that that they were able to mix the green LED, the red one, and blue creating white light, and then sprung from that all of these color-changing kinetics and color-changing light stuff that you have now. So uh, in the show was rhythmic gymnastics, acrobatics, dance, puppetry, magic, black art theater, chaos theory, physics phenomenon, and experimental methods. I mean, things that you really can't even decide what they are. But I realized I'd, I nailed it when I had some magicians come and see the show in San Francisco and they couldn't figure out what I was doing. And that uh, for any juggler to fool a magician is one of those like, yeah. <laughs> well, you are a true uh, Renaissance man because in addition to, of course, your own juggling career, this creation of, of Luma, your writing projects. And I, I recommend everybody go to your website, Mind of Marlin. So I think your design of your website is excellent. So if you want to see a really first-class website, check that out. But also, there's something I'm also very excited about, which is toy design. And you have a new Kickstarter campaign for your toy. So give a little bit of plug for, for the toy you actually invented. Yes. Give us a little plug there, Mark. Yeah, thank you. It's a, it's a coiled lasso called a Slingers with two Zs on the end of it. And if you go to Kickstarter, you can just punch in coil lasso and it'll come right up. But uh, as I was developing Luma, I used to go down to different industrial design shows. Um, I always strongly recommend to people to operate and explore outside your discipline to get uh, inspiration. So I had this soft little coil that was used for pneumatics and I was swinging it around in my van and it hit the steering wheel and wrapped around it like four or five times. And I like went, wait a second. And I went into the laundry mat where I was doing laundry and I lassoed a chair leg and a coat hook and a doorknob and a coat hanger. And instantly I realized this thing can be as big as a slinky because it interacts with the world. And it's a soft coil about four inches long with a tail on it. And when you swing it from the tail, the coil expands and it wraps around its target. And I've created about 40 different tricks and games with it. But the jaw-dropping move is that you can lasso a chair and drag it across the room to you. And when people see that, it's like, uh, I didn't know that was possible. And that's what a true invention does, is creates in the viewer's mind a whole breakthrough experience that they didn't have prior to that moment. Slingers, S-L-I-N-G-E-R-Z-Z. -S -L -L -E so this is the prop a, a juggler could have, let's say a club or a stick or a cane or a broom, then lasso it and pull it towards them so they can actually have this in their show. Yeah, that's the opening uh, trick in the video where I go, here's a slinger and this is what it can do. And I lasso a, uh, a broom on the other side of the room and it flies through the air and into my hand. And then I do it again in slow motion because people don't even believe it happened. And then I, I do it with a chair. And they'll be available at the shows. If people come out to see the Luma show, I will have some available for sale as well. And, and the Kickstarter campaign is to really get it out there. I've sold about 25,000 of them over the course of the years. But I always had to be on stage and demonstrating the toy. I mean, this was long before the advent of YouTube and easily accessible mobile apps where you could watch videos online. And now to really be able to launch it into the world in a much bigger way and getting it out to the mass market, this is what the Kickstarter campaign is all about. And also you do your show as a, your comedy juggling show as a bit of a pre-show for Luma. So people can also see you performing as well. Yes, I love coming out on stage and saying, welcome to my show, Luma. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to be the opening act for my own show. Yeah, I do a curtain warming act. So they'll get to see uh, some stuff from the... Uh, old Vegas show and I do a trick which I believe I was the first to innovate which is a five ring pull down with the fifth ring being caught on the foot. Even though we've talked over an hour I've kind of barely scratched the surface of the man <laughs> and the mind of Marlon. So just to sort of put a capper on this whole thing I know you sort of have a, a life's mission a philosophy. Do you mind sort of sharing with us your philosophy this life's mission and sort of bring out bring this this podcast to an end, if you could. 
Yes, my mission in life is I create an evolving world by inspiring others to connect with their own creativity. For me to connect with my own creativity, I have to constantly explore and pioneer new things. And to be a pioneer means being willing to take the arrows that pioneers get, to endure the hardships, to do the to be without, to endure what it means to have a passion for something. And the word passion literally means to suffer for. The true artist, the true artist is willing to give up a tremendous amount to bring their art into the world, whatever that is, whether it's juggling or magic or carpentry or painting or, or whatever it is that you do. Always continue to take the chance, take the risk, be the man in the arena, as Theodore Roosevelt mentions. I strongly recommend that people look that up, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, the man in the arena, and read that and print it out and put it up someplace where you can constantly refer to it because it will give you the boost to continue to have the gumption, the gumption and the tenacity to keep on keeping on. And anybody who's listening who's a juggler realizes that the only way you learn to juggle is to be willing to fail over and over and over again until eventually you get that trick, you get that move. And that's what we live for. Well, my thanks to a, a true pioneer of the world of comedy juggling, a big inspiration to me in my career, a big thanks and a big thank you, Mr. Marlin. Marlin, the creator of Luma and the creator of Slingers. Thanks for being on the Drop Everything podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. It was really, really a wonderful experience. Thank you. And to all of you out there, thanks for listening in. See you in the dark. I hope you enjoyed podcast number 28 of the Drop Everything podcast, this time with one of the pioneers of the comedy juggling genre, Marlon. Go see Luma his theater of light when it comes to a city near you, and join his Kickstarter campaign for the Slingers. That's Slingers with two Zs. Before we go, let's thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA, the International Jugglers Association. Find out about this great group of jugglers, their yearly festival, the products they sell, and so much more at juggle.org. Visit my personal coaching website, braindrizzles.com, and go to iTunes, Leave a review and a five-star rating. That would help us get more listeners for Drop Everything with me, Dan Holzman. Now, go out there in the world, drop everything, except when you're juggling.